very excited to be talking today with Dr. Julie Slattery of Authentic Intimacy. Dr. Julie, right before we get into the content today, I'm going to give you some short phrases. Could you just give your quick flash intuitive response to them and uncensored, unedited, okay? Okay, I'll do my best. Okay. <laughs> All right. Here's here's the first phrase. Designer sex. Mm, good. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Okay. All right. What about this one? Shulamite sexology. If you want to take a couple sentences for each one, you can do it. Shulamite Shulamite sexology. Intriguing. We'll talk about that today, I think, because I've I've heard some of your content on the Song of Solomon. Okay. Uh, What about holy heat? Holy heat. Um, Passion, something to strive for. Yeah. Those are the first things that come to mind. Yeah, very good. How about authentic intimacy? I know that's the name of your organization. I know that when you like title a book or title an organization, there's a lot of thought that goes into it. What's, mm-hmm. your, what's your feelings about authentic intimacy? What we're all striving for, what the enemy tries to keep us from. Yeah, sort of presupposes an, that there is an, a counterfeit out there, right? An inauthentic intimacy mm-hmm. or something a lot lower than God's best, God's design. Dr. Mm-hmm. Julie Slattery is a clinical psychologist. She's an author, a speaker. She's the president and co-founder of Authentic Intimacy, which you can find at AuthenticIntimacy.com. She has a degree from Wheaton, an MA in psychology from Biola, and a master's and doctorate in clinical psychology from the Florida Institute of Technology. Dr. Julie, was it between 2008 and 2012 that you were with Focus on the Family? That's correct, yeah. Doing some writing and teaching there. Your organization, Authentic Intimacy, when was that started and, and what's your mission for that for that organization? Yeah, it was started in July of 2012, so I guess we're celebrating our seventh anniversary. Okay. And um, initially, we started as a ministry um, really reclaiming God's design for sex, speaking to women. I'd say within the last year, we've also branched out with a secondary mission, which is equipping the church to have honest, God-honoring conversations around sexuality. Reclaiming God's design for sexuality. That's that's intriguing. You have a podcast called Java with Julie. And what, what kinds of guests do you have there? Oh, all kinds. Uh, sometimes we'll have experts on topics related to sexuality, uh, anything from pornography to healthy sex and marriage to LGBTQ questions. And sometimes we have people on that have more of a journey or testimony to share. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes it's just a conversation among our, our team internally around issues. So uh, there's a lot of variety with it. But what I think every episode has is a lot of honest, authentic conversation around tough issues. We, we don't know how to do small talk, so we, oh. we dive right in. <laughs> okay, great. Her husband's name is Mike, and they're the parents of three sons. They live in Ohio, the Akron, Cleveland area. I, too, my wife and daughters live in Ohio. This is the Great Lakes region of, the, of America. So, Dr. Julie, your concern is this phrase, sexual discipleship. And do you feel that it might be a generalization, perhaps, but how is the church doing with this? Well, I don't think we're doing very well, and that's not to insult our church leaders. I think that we have adopted a heritage, a tradition that pretty much says that we don't talk about sex in church. And if we do talk about it, it tends to be stilted or sound judgmental, uh, or we talk about it awkwardly. And, uh, and so we have a lot of church leaders in today's generation that are facing tremendous questions and issues related to sexuality 
including the Me Too movement, uh, pornography use, sexual addiction, LGBTQ issues, on and on and on. And uh, they really are not equipped. They've never had it modeled for them. How do we how do we venture into this territory? So I think we've we've moved from a silence approach uh, to now almost a panicked problem solving approach mm. of you know how do we get groups to address all of these things and uh, you know our, our our congregations are dealing with so much pain we don't even know where to start and so uh, I think most churches don't have a concept of what it is to step into more of a discipleship approach related to sexuality. Yeah, I mean, obviously discipleship is a big part of what Jesus commissioned us to do, right? Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And I don't know, yeah. do you think that we've conceived of discipleship over the over the generation, years, really, or decades? You say, we're, you say we're trying to catch up now on some of these issues. We're panicking as the church. Have we seen discipleship too narrowly? Yeah, I think we've tended to have a divide of uh, of our spiritual life and our carnal life. Uh, and writers like Francis Schaeffer were talking about this many, many years ago, but it's this idea that we disciple people in the spiritual fruit of the Holy Spirit, and we disciple them about maybe tithing and parenting, mm. but certain categories of life that, that the church doesn't really touch. Uh, like one of them, I think traditionally has been money. Although we might teach about tithing, I wouldn't say it was until Larry Burkett or Dame Ramsey came along that we really started to understand the integration of finances and being a follower of Jesus. Um, so we're starting to see that integration, but sexuality is maybe one of the last pieces to be integrated into the Christian life. Uh, and it's sort of been relegated as, you know, follow these rules. And as long as you follow these rules, God's good with your sexuality. Uh, and he doesn't really want to know a whole lot about it, <laughs> which, isn't, which isn't biblical. Um, and so what we see in today's day and age is that a lot of younger Christians are pretty much accepting this idea that God cares about a lot of areas of my life, but he allows me to define my sexuality the way I want to. He's okay with that. And again, that's not biblical either. So um, so we tend to have this divide of areas of life that require discipleship and are appropriate, and then areas of life that are more personal. Yeah, yeah. So it's not it's not holistic enough. There's not enough. It's not comprehensive enough, mm -hmm. you know, on these major, major issues of, of what it means to be a human being, right? What it, what it means to live successfully in this world. And so what, there's been a vacuum over the decades, and maybe the world has rushed in, would you say the world system? Does the world system disciple us? <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, and, you know, we use that term disciple, and we think that that's only applicable yeah. to religious settings. But disciple, you know, is really a holistic way of teaching us how to live. And uh, as Christians, we want to be discipled by Jesus. We want to be his disciples, and we want to integrate all of our life into the question, what does it mean to honor Jesus and to follow him? But the world has another narrative that helps us make sense of life, and, uh, and it's really more around how can I be most fulfilled. And so we absolutely are discipled by the larger culture to think that the most important thing for me today is to find personal fulfillment. And uh, anything or anyone that gets in the way of that, including God, 
um, should be ignored or even hated. And so um, that's that explains a lot of why people think about sexuality the way they do today, that sexuality is about my fulfillment, my identity, no one should speak into it. I have the right to define it for myself um, because we really have begun believing that cultural narrative that life is about me finding fulfillment and being true to what I think I want. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, I mean, Jesus' statement that, you know, if you lose your life, you'll actually find it. There's a higher life that I have for you that you must, like, trust me and lose what you think will bring you happiness, fulfillment, pleasure, right? And, and but I will show you the real life if you if you come to me right and and learn from me and that is a trust issue isn't it that is a surrender issue that is a step of faith issue to follow Christ in that way yeah for sure it is and we're not teaching that uh, we've really watered down what it means to be a Christian and and uh, sexuality is just one of those areas where we're seeing seeing the fallout uh, if we teach a Christianity that requires nothing from us then uh, we should be surprised when when Jesus says, don't do things that we want to do. So, um, so a lot of sexual discipleship and truly real discipleship is going back to even the difficult teachings of Jesus in the Gospels. Yeah, losing our life to find it and taking up our cross and following him. And, and then we're raised to a, to a new experience, a new life as a new creature in Christ. And that has to touch on issues like, I mean, I, th- I think the three main categories of practical living seem to be relationships, which we could put sexuality in that category, I suppose, finance, and like wellness and health, you know, those seem mm-hmm. to be the practical needs that, that, that basically that people need and want and, and rightfully aspire to, you know, live their highest life in those categories. But we're saying that what Jesus he has a complete world view to bring to us, right? And he touches in all those areas. And if we'll trust him, we can live our best life in those categories as a Christ follower. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, relationships, intimacy, significance, purpose. Um, yeah, that's what everybody's looking for. And the scripture talks about people being blinded, deceived by the enemy. They they hear what the Bible says or they, they hear what Christians believe and they think it's foolishness. From the world's perspective, it is foolishness, but that's why Christians are, are called to be different. They were called to not live like the world lives, and there should be distinctions in every year of our life. So it's a generalization, but you feel that the church is playing catch-up ball on these issues like LGBT or gender issues, uh, pornography, the whole sexual, all of the sexual issues as it relates to relationships and marriage. You feel we're kind of playing catch-up? Uh I think we're playing catch up, but I also think, uh, and I, again, I don't want to overgeneralize because uh, different churches and denominations are dealing with these issues differently. But I think a lot of Christians are trying to find a way to uh, compromise with the world while clinging to God. Uh, because the, particularly the LGBTQ issues and really just the whole idea of sex, sex positivity and sexual freedom it's such a prominent um, value of our culture that uh, Christians will immediately be at odds anytime they say that's not God's way. And so a lot of Christians are trying to find a way to, uh, to embrace the gospel and embrace Christianity 
while making a compromise that won't offend the world uh, and won't drive people away. So, um, so I, there's a lot of confusion because most Christians don't know what they believe about sexuality, and uh, and so everybody seems to have their own their own values and their own morals and their own way of living this out without a whole lot of cohesion or unity. Mm. And so you mentioned that your your work is focusing on young women in particular, right? That's sort of a core mission. Uh, yeah, we really have two two core audiences. First of all, is women. Uh, I would say ages eighteen and up. So uh, not just young women, but adult women. And then the second core audience is Christian leaders. Yeah, Christian leaders, so that they can make the church more proficient, right, in addressing these issues and discipling and equipping their people in these issues. Talk to me about Me Too, and I'm hearing now there's this thing called We Too, which is in the church world. Uh, yeah. What are you seeing across America, and even maybe if, if there's even internationals, you know, something to say internationally about it? But what are you, what are you seeing, and how can the church uh, sort of rush to that battle line with, um, you know, some answers? Yeah, well, I'm probably one of the few people in America who uh, is not surprised by either the Me Too or the We Too movement. Really, anybody that is dealing with um, mental health issues, specifically dealing with sexuality, we've been hearing these stories um, for decades of how rampant sexual abuse is in the culture and in families, but also how rampant it is, unfortunately, in religious settings. Uh, And um, so when I first began hearing stories uh, many, many years ago about pastors uh, that were abusing their authority and violating women and girls. Mm-hmm. Of course, I didn't want to believe it. Um, and the, the Catholic Church kind of came out first with with the scandals. But those of us who have been working in the evangelical world, uh, we, we have known that this has been a, a hidden issue everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and so what what's happening is not more abuse. It's just that it's coming to the surface and that people for the first time feel like if they, if they speak out loud, what's happened and uh, they'll be believed. Whereas before they, they've always feared and experienced that they'll be silenced or minimized or they'll become re-victimized. And so, um, so it's just bringing to the surface, uh, really corruption and brokenness that has always been there. And, and like the evangelical church, how do you feel that we're, we're, we're doing with that, this, this surfacing? And obviously there's culturally, there's more permission now to, you know, to say it, to come out and say what's happened and to be vocal about it without feeling, um, you know, shamed or disbelieved or re-victimized, as you say. How are we doing? My, my sense is that there's some, it's, it's a mixed, a mixed results. <laughs> it's, you know, it's such a, it's such a complex issue, Brian, that, that no no organization or culture is going to immediately deal with this well. Um, the first step is to give voice to it. Um, I love I love I forget who first said it, but I love the statement that all progress begins by telling the truth. And we haven't been telling the truth um, about what's happening and about um, the potential for power to become exploitive in every setting. And so I think right now we're in a stage of just truth telling and um, and then we're going to have to move into from truth telling to now what do we do in terms of providing environments for healing 
on providing a, like changing the culture where there's accountability yeah. and where there's the expectation that this can happen in every setting, that all of us are capable of greater evil than we want to admit to. Uh, and so to really address these issues, there has to be an environmental change. It can't just be um, a sermon series or it can't just be we're going to put policies in place. All those things need to happen, but those are small pieces of changing the environment so that um, there's a higher level of accountability uh, and vulnerability and uh, authentic, authentically pursuing healing as a community. Yeah, I'm going to say something here, which, you know, slightly uncomfortable, I guess, regarding leadership. I, I Sometimes I wonder if some of our leadership models are not that healthy. And, you know, I want to say, uh, Julie, that if Christ in our life is doing, if, if, if we are flowing with him, if we are flowing with a deep transforming work of Christ in our life, I don't know how as a human being, or certainly as a leader, that you could somehow feel at liberty to do these things, you know? I mean, like, you know, there's something called the fear of the Lord, right? <laughs> you know, the, just the, 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 the ethic of Christ begins to grow in us so large. How can we abuse girls and women and boys if Christ is doing a deeper work in our life? I just don't know how that, that could ever be compatible. Yeah. Um, I, like I mentioned earlier, it's, it's complicated because um, we don't take into account the brokenness that our leaders bring into their roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, even men and women that are sold out for the Lord, many of them are bringing in um, baggage from the past. Maybe they've been exposed to pornography at a young age. They've been abused. And uh, they don't feel like in a spiritual leadership setting they can ever say that. Okay. And then what happens once they get into leadership, let's say those temptations become more pronounced with stress and isolation, and so they begin using pornography more, uh, creating a fantasy world. And you're absolutely right that a lot of our leadership structures promote isolation. They promote an unrealistic expectation that leaders don't struggle. At least they shouldn't struggle with certain things. Mm -hmm. And so when struggles become being even a small issue, the average pastor or leader doesn't feel any place to say, I need help. Uh, And we all know that sin grows in secret places. Uh, It grows in darkness. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I can understand how a godly man who starts out with, you know, a call on his heart and his life over the years of not being questioned, of not having accountability, of feeling the pressure to be perfect, not having a place to go to be challenged uh, and to receive his own healing can really begin building a secret life that's completely incompatible with everything he's teaching. Mm. It, it really does like incrementally creep up on people over years, doesn't it? And maybe deeper issues that have not been resolved um, yeah. eventually catch up. Yeah, it's just, you know, I I think in Paul when Paul wrote, to you who think you stand, be careful lest yeah. you fall. Yep. And when we study history, for example, and we look at what happened in World War II and how these average people 
perform such heinous crimes against each other, uh, there's an element that should sober us that um, that there's there's the potential for great evil within each of us, and we all need to be in a place of accountability, repentance uh, on a regular basis um, because. Uh, we face a, a powerful foe. Our flesh is strong. And if we are not in a continual state of depending on God, I've kind of learned there's no limit to my own capacity for evil. And that's a healthy fear to have. It sure is a, a sober awareness to have, you know, like no temptation has overtaken us. There's always a way of escape. The verse preceding it, the one you touched on that, you know, take heed lest you fall. Anyone mm -hmm. can fall. David. I mean, look at David, right? Wow. Yeah. King David, such a intimate relationship with God and yet such yeah. such egregious sin and then cover up right murder wow I mean yeah. uh, even like some of the tendencies there's there's always a tendency to put the fig leaves on and cover it up like whether it's the Roman Catholic Church or we're starting uh -huh. starting to see it in the evangelical world as, as this surfaces there's um, not a quickness to admit and to deal with these things openly and transparently and so some voices are continuing to raise their volume right as they should to bring this issue on the onto the table so that, I don't know, adequate acknowledgement, repentance, new accountability structures, new forms of, I don't know, teaching and discipleship in these spaces to, to um, shine the light on it. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your book that came out last year by Multnomah, Rethinking Sexuality. The tagline is God's Design and Why It Matters. I love this word design. Yeah. Uh, so I've been in the ministry of authentic intimacy since 2012. And um, for the first six years, almost all the work that I did was with Christian women and going all around the country, teaching, um, creating resources for women on sexuality. And what I saw in those six years was some of what we've already touched on that, that most Christians, even if they really know the scriptures, they've been discipled in so many areas of their lives, they haven't been discipled in their sexuality. They have a very limited understanding of God's design for sexuality. Okay. And, uh, and, and even the leaders that I work with, a lot of them have not thought through the issues that we're now facing. And so rethinking sexuality was really more just me kicking back and uh, and really evaluating what what are the things that I've seen in the Christian church that I think need to be changed for us to effectively address sexual issues in our day and age. Um, what is what is a mindset that can equip us uh, to deal with um, the the issues we're facing? Okay. How do we begin to do that? And so rethinking sexuality is presenting sort of a new model of how we do that as Christians. And and do you trace it back to Eden, I guess? Creation? Male, female? Uh, I mean, not necessarily. <laughs> okay. Definitely everything began for humanity in the Garden of Eden, and there's certainly lots of things uh, that are foundational there. Like you said, male, female, marriage, the purpose of marriage, the fall, how Satan deceives us. Um, so, of course, there's going to be threads of that throughout everything. Um, but it's really some fundamental paradigm shifts that I think we have to make related to sexual issues. Uh, you know, like one of them 
is understanding that every sexual issue is important because it's at heart a spiritual issue. Hmm. And I think, like I mentioned earlier, we want to we want to separate the sex, sexuality from spirituality instead of seeing them as integrated. And so really helping people understand that you, what you believe about sexuality will come out of what you believe about God, about his word, about his character, about your nature um, and and redemption. So really helping people integrate those concepts is is just one thing that we need to do differently. Another thing we need to do differently, and there's all kinds of things in the book, but another one is really understanding that we should never feel like we have to separate truth and love. Like we've got to choose one or the other. And I think when we talk about sexual issues today, most Christians feel like there's a tension of we're going to either choose to be people that cling to God's truth, or we're going to choose to be people that are compassionate and loving. Okay. And, um, you know, if you look at the life of Christ, he was described as a man full of both grace and truth. And so, um, wrestling through that tension of how do we be, how do we become people that, like Jesus, are characterized by both 100% truth and 100% love? That's pretty big because I think that maybe some of us have defined grace as well. The Lord understands; He forgives; He covers. You know what I do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's much more accepting of diversity or of different expressions of love than we are. Paul would say, speak the truth in love. You're you're saying that there's a way that we can mix truth and love together. Yeah. And not only that we can, but we, we have to, Yeah, that, um, to be a follower of Jesus means that we, we do not have permission to compromise either truth or love. We have to continue to walk out that tension. So it's a design issue. I mean, I think that sin is obviously, it's an affront to God's glory. It's, you know, it's, it's a, um, some kind of a resistance to his nature, right? But, but sin is also a design issue. It's, it's a departure from design, right? Yeah. I mean, sin at its heart is rebellion against God. And it's saying, God, I don't trust your way. I trust my way better. And there's, uh, endless ways that we we can live that out. And so certainly within sexuality, sexual sin is saying, I don't trust what your word says about my sexuality. I would rather define it as I see fit. And again, there's all kinds of ways that that plays out and through selfishness in marriage, through pornography, through sleeping around, and, you know, all kinds of ways that we design sex to be the way we want it instead of really wanting to honor our creator. Mm. Yeah. And, and so grace, I mean, grace is more than unmerited favor. I want to say, you know, I, I mean, I, that's a helpful definition, unmerited favor. I think sometimes we forget that grace is also an empowerment an energy from God, a blessing and empowerment to help us to live according to design. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah. You know, a, a lot of people think of God's grace as God accepts me just the way I am. At one level, that's true. Um, just the way you are, God invites you um, to connect with him, to connect with the Father through Jesus Christ. 
in that connection, in that unity with Christ, it's impossible to stay the way you are. And um, and so people really want grace as more of this idea of I don't have to feel guilty or shameful, but they don't want what grace really is with it, which is you have an invitation to be one with God and to be part of his family, to, to take on his identity. And that requires that that you change, that every single one of us change. It's not just the person that's living in sexual immorality. It's the person who is proud. It's the person who gossips. It's the person who lies. Sure. Uh, it's the person who lives with fear. Uh, yeah. uh, and so it's really impossible to truly encounter grace and to stay the same. Um, so absolutely, and the power comes through, as Jesus said, abiding in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Right, uh, But grace is that invitation that just as you are, you are invited to abide with Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. It is acceptance. We are accepted in the beloved. It, it, it is just as you are. It is remedial in nature, but it's not just remedial. It's also, as you've said, a, a call into design, I, I guess, you know, a, a call into living according according to design. Now, I, I know I've heard you say before that sexuality is a powerful metaphor of a sacred romance, right, mm-hmm. between God and his people. I think I even heard you say that sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife is pointing toward the covenant, the intimate yes. covenant of God and his people. Is right. it is it some kind of, I mean, you're saying that all sexuality is spiritual, right? We can't divorce Sexuality is not just glandular, right, or biological, or flesh or skin, but it is spiritual in nature. It is spirit, soul, and body, so we can't. But but you're saying that sexuality is a powerful metaphor of a much larger romance underway? Yeah, and hopefully it's not just me saying it. I, I think we see that message throughout both the Old Testament and New Testament that the whole idea of marriage and one flesh union, as Paul would say in Ephesians chapter five, is a mystery pointing to Christ in the church. Yep. Um, yep. So why yep. is why is it that that metaphor, where Jesus is called our bridegroom, uh, why is it that we we have the metaphor and revelation of the wedding feast of the Lamb? Mm-hmm. Uh, because marriage, including sexual intimacy within marriage, and including male and female was all created to be a physical way to help us anticipate the spiritual union that we are created to have with God. And we see that in the Old Testament where that metaphor is continually used uh, for the nation of Israel. Sure. In Ezekiel, um, I think it's 15 and 16, God talks about how Israel was like uh, a child that was abandoned uh, in her own blood and that uh, God picked her up and cleaned her off and made her beautiful and dressed her and married her uh, and and ha- uses very sexual language for the love that God has for Israel and that Israel went out and sought other lovers and was sexually unfaithful. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just me saying it's a metaphor. It's looking at scripture and seeing that most often when sexuality is addressed, it is used to describe uh, the spiritual metaphor of Christ's covenant love with his people, his faithfulness towards them, our passion towards his, him, our anticipation of being united with him, 
And so sexuality is a way in our bodies that we experience uh, a foreshadow of what God created us for. Amen. Yeah, I've always resonated with that idea. And I, I agree with you. There are other voices, too, within the body of Christ. I'm thinking of maybe somebody like a John and Stacy Eldridge or others who, who have talked along these lines, you know, the sacred romance and and uh, the whole thing of um, captivated a woman and, and um, you know, the sacred uh, relationship between a husband and a wife. So when a husband and a wife, let's let's see, the husband, he obviously wants to feel close in his sexuality with his wife, but he's probably more dominant towards the physical pleasure aspect of it, right? Is she more inclined, generally speaking, to enjoy the connected feeling with her husband? And does she need to maybe quest to develop give herself permission more to enjoy the physical pleasure of it. Yeah. It's hard to paint with broad brushes. Um, yeah. yeah. I think in today's day and age particular, we're hearing more from, from women that really enjoy sexual intimacy and they think they feel like that's a very important part of their marriage and there's men who are avoiding it. And so um, I, I don't want to paint too broadly, yeah. but generally speaking, Men do experience um, sexual desire more as something that's physical. Even the fact that they have 10 times more testosterone than women, uh, and testosterone is the primary hormone in the body that creates sexual desire for both men and women. So, um, so physiologically, men are more wired to experience that as a physical desire. Women, uh, in general, uh, tend to need to be awakened both physically and emotionally, uh, in general, they need to have a feeling of safety and connectedness to even be able to think about enjoying sex. Uh, and so, uh, and that's not true of all men and all women, but in general, that that's more the way we're wired. And mm-hmm. so for women, a lot of women enjoy sex primarily because it's a way of feeling connected and bonded and valued uh, with their spouse. Now, the Song of Solomon I've heard you say that there is no woman in the Bible who gets more ink than this Shulamite woman. Is that right? (laughs) It's true. I mean, in terms of what she said or words or discourse, I mean, uh, you know, great, great women in the Bible, Deborah, right? Queen Esther, I mean, New Testament women, but, but she gets the most ink. She does. Yeah. I mean, in terms of her words being recorded, that's kind of shocking. I think for most people to really sit back and think, wow, like she's a woman in the Bible that gets a lot of ink uh, compared to other women. What do we do with that? What do we do with it? Well, I think there are a couple different ways you can look at it. And I have uh, some feminist friends who would say, well, that's because men wrote the Bible. And, uh, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that's the only time they listen to women. (laughs) So you can have, I I got to admit, that's a pretty good line right there. It's pretty good. Like, yeah, I see your point there. Uh, But we can also look at it in terms of the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. And there is a reason why the Song of Solomon is is written the way it is. And there's a reason why it is regarded as part of the canon, part of the inspired word of God. Mm -hmm. And, um, And I think there's a horizontal way to view this in terms of what it means for marriage. It really giving women permission to accept and embrace the fact that they are sexual too. 
and that they have sexual longings and needs and desires. Uh, a lot of people only talk about men having desire. But even in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which most people think of as the wifely duty passage, uh, okay. that passage begins with saying to husbands, a husband, you have the duty to love your wife sexually. And uh, written within that is the whole context of you have a duty to study your wife and understand how to awaken her sexually. Okay. And okay. I think Song of Solomon really brings that to light. Um, but we also need to look at it metaphorically. That Song of Solomon, if sex really is this metaphor of God's covenant relationship with his people, then we can look look at that same book with a metaphorical lens of uh, God as a husband awakening his desire and his passion in his bride and us responding and us using our imagination and us pursuing uh, romance with God, pursuing how do we love? Yeah, how do we love him with our heart? You know, the scripture says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, the heart is is your affections. How do we worship him fully with our whole heart? And and so if we look at that metaphor of Song of Solomon of how a husband and wife enjoy passion together, we also have to look at, is my relationship with God just one of duty? Or is it it also marked by passion? Yeah. And, um, and... including all of who I am and not just, not just duty bound. That's so good. Yeah. I mean, if it is a metaphor of a greater sacred romance, then why would we not see the song of Solomon in both that vertical and horizontal dimension? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, just from a literature perspective or like a biblical literature perspective, it's, it's understood as a pretty intense piece of Oriental love poetry but mm-hmm. it's it comes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and when that happens, of course, and it's in the canon as it is, and boy, the Scripture takes on this extra dimensionality, and just um, the 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 facets of the diamond are revealed, you know, mm-hmm. just um, just awesome. Yeah, there's a lot there. Yeah, so I mean, if if all of this is true, which it is true, what we're saying about about this sacred romance and this metaphor, is it any wonder that our adversary? assaults it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he uh, tries to corrupt it. He sure does. You you know, I think about Satan being a schemer as the scripture talks about him being. And uh, I think about the game of risk that some of us grew up with where you had all these little pieces and you had a limited number of pieces to do war with. And you had to be strategic about where do you place the pieces? Mm -hmm. Where do you build your army? And we have to understand that Satan has limited capacity. And so he has to be strategic about what is he going to destroy? What is he going to try to distort? And uh, I would I would suggest that nothing is under greater satanic attack than sexuality is. Yeah. And gender, and, and, and with that gender, right? Yeah. He does it in all different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can't just pick one thing. It's it is the pornography, it is the hookup culture, it is gender, it is confusion about what marriage is, it's divorce, it's uh, selfishness in marriage. Why, Julie? It's, it's, it's because sexuality is so primal. It's like it's it's upstream from so many other things that come, come downstream from it. I, you know, I think it's also, it's just so powerful. It's powerful, like if we, yeah. If we really experienced what God designed sex to be, if we really designed, experienced and witnessed what he designed marriage to be, 
uh, it would be a powerful representation of the gospel. Uh, and for most people, even Christians, their experience of sexuality is so twisted and distorted that that metaphor has no power in their lives. And, and just last question, is, is sexuality then also really a therapeutic gift from God? Because it is so connected with other issues like safety in a relationship or security or, you know, self-giving love. It's like it highlights and underscores those issues as we improve on those other issues. Our sexuality is elevated. Our, our experience with it does it is it really something of a therapeutic opportunity to to heal in other ways as well. Yeah, I think um, relationships of all kinds have the potential to be therapeutic and healing um, because relationships, healthy relationships, are really a form of revelation. I think we've all experienced somebody who loved us when they shouldn't have loved us, or we've experienced somebody extending grace that we didn't expect. And I remember talking to this one man of God like a year ago. He was my pastor many, many years ago, and he was so kind to me. And I just remember walking away thinking, is God as kind to me as this man was? And, uh, and it really made me think, Wow, you know, God's God's kindness is even greater than this person's kindness. And that's just one example of how when we are in healthy relationship, it connects us to the to the goodness of God. Um, when a when, for example, a woman who's been abused by men is married to a loving husband and experiences nurturing in the sexual relationship and safety and patience, she's gonna start wondering, wow. You know, maybe men aren't all bad. Maybe I am lovable. Maybe if he loves me, God can love me. And so absolutely, uh, sexuality is the potential to be a vehicle of great harm, but it also has the potential to be a vehicle of great good. Yeah, so good. So AuthenticIntimacy.com, your podcast again, Java? Java with Julie. Yeah, Java with Julie. Search for that on the podcast apps. And your latest book is Rethinking Sexuality, God's Design, and Why It Matters. Tremendous book. And I know you've written several other books preceding that, right? Yeah, yeah. There are a number of books, particularly for women around uh, the area of sexuality. So Passion Pursuit, um, Sex and the Single Girl, Pulling Back the Shades, lots of different resources for women. What about events and conferences? Yeah, uh, well, you're you're in the Northeastern Ohio area, so you'll appreciate this. We have a big conference coming up October 4th and 5th in Akron, Ohio, uh, and it's called Reclaim. And it's really how do we reclaim this territory of sexuality, first within our own lives, but also as we're engaging with people we love and engaging with culture. So um, that conference, you can find out information about it at our website, as long as other speaking events around the country. Are you thinking about a new title in the future, some new thoughts uh, germinating? Not yet, really. I kind of have this deal with God that I'll never write a book unless he really burdens my heart for okay. it. So right now, I, I, I really am more trying to build out uh, resources for leaders around rethinking sexuality, e-courses, and things like that. Um, but no books Super. in the world right now. Well, would you mind praying? I think that would be wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity to connect with Brian and other brothers and sisters in Christ who want to honor you 
want to know your design, want to, Lord, ask you to bring healing and redemption in their own lives. And Lord, we just pray for your power, the power of your truth to transform our hearts. And I pray for the man or woman who this is really just a burden for them right now because of something they're dealing with personally. I pray, Lord, that you would show them the next steps of what healing looks like and what a walking with truth looks like. And I pray, Lord, that you would equip your people, that you'd help us to see truth and not be deceived by the enemy, uh, and that you'd help us to walk in your power and in your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We agree with that. Yeah, AuthenticIntimacy.com. It's an important area to pay attention to, to really get good content, to really steward that space in our lives. It is so primal, so core. Thank you for the time today, uh, Dr. Julie. Okay, thanks so much, Brian. I appreciate it. All right. Blessings. Okay, bye. Can I ask a question? What if becoming more Christ-like, being discipled and mentored in the ways of Christ's kingdom, actually positioned us to experience more of God's higher design? in our relationships, in all relationships, including marriage and our sexuality? What about the spaces of finances, health and wellness, work and calling, business, education, civic government, and on and on? What if we positioned ourselves to experience God's higher design in all things? Well, I think we can say that our sexuality is primal. It's core to our humanity. And grace is not merely remedial. It doesn't just fix our mistakes. Grace empowers us to live up to higher design in everything. It's a witness to the grace giver, to the designer. And designer sex in marital love is a witness of the sacred romance that Dr. Julie speaks of, to the married supper of the Lamb, and to the restoration of all things that Jesus spoke of. 